Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And in common with many of my episodes recently, this is a lot later than I would like and a lot longer than I would like, because it's been a chaotic week, as it always is in the run-up to Christmas. There were family commitments which got in the way of a planned cinema trip going over to Bristol, so that got delayed a lot longer than I would have liked. There's been a major outbreak of the Omicron variants of COVID in the NFL, so that meant I spent a lot more days and a lot longer watching American football overnight, which threw off my schedule. I realised that I had three rental streaming films downloaded onto my tablet which were rapidly running out their rental period was expiring and then on wednesday shortlists for many oscar categories were released which meant suddenly i had a lot of stuff added to the list which i had been hoping to avoid and one of the international feature contenders was still playing in a cinema, even though it came out a couple of weeks ago, so that had to be added to the list at the last minute. So all of this goes to say that many of the films in this podcast will be too late to actually watch at the cinema, but I will have them down on record when you can get them on streaming, and yeah, it's been a very, very busy week. And in this episode... The quote-unquote cinematic films I saw, although, as I said, many of these you will not be able to see at the cinema anymore, we have the big, gigantic blockbuster Spider-Man No Way Home, the intimate, small-scale American film Swan Song, which is actually also available on Apple Plus TV, the Belgian trans drama Lola and the Sea, The Icelandic film Lamb, which has ended up on the 15-film long list for international feature competition, but I basically saw it to the last possible chance I could at the cinema, so that's one you're going to have to store for when it comes out on streaming. On streaming platforms, we have the Sky Cinema film Last Train to Christmas, which I managed to squeeze in watching with my family. And also the streaming films I had downloaded and were expiring. Wild Indian, The Last Days of Capitalism, and The Way You Look Tonight. So that's a total of eight films that will be reviewed in this particular episode. And it's probably going to be another really, really long one. So let's just get straight on with today's reviews. Big Screen. Spider-Man No Way Home is the latest entry in the gigantic Marvel Cinematic Universe, 
and also the latest iteration of the latest version of Spider-Man. And as I've already said, I think the naming conventions of this latest Spider-Man sequence are very confusing, with Homecoming, Far From Home, and now No Way Home. A, you're always going to get that wrong, and I'm sure I will get that wrong at some point during this review. And B, how does that let you know which order they're in at all? But anyway, that's what they've decided to do. And for the third straight Spider-Man film, this has been directed by John Watts, who took the increasingly common path of having one small-budget independent film, which was a hit on the festival circuit, in this case Cop Car, and then he immediately got given the keys to a gigantic cinematic franchise, and he has directed all three of these Spider-Man films. And this film... No Way Home takes over immediately following the mid-credit sequence of Far From Home, where Spider-Man slash Peter Parker, played by Tom Holland, has just been outed very publicly by the conspiracy blogger J. Jonah Jameson, played by J.K. Simmons, very, very directly based on Alex Jones of InfoWars, has just announced that Spider-Man is this high school student, Peter Parker, and he is responsible for all the terrorist activities that Mysterio, Jake Gyllenhaal, did in the last movie. So now the court of public opinion, the social media maelstrom, is surrounding Peter Parker, and... He is the centre of a gigantic firestorm and it is interfering in the lives of all the people around him. His girlfriend Zendaya, his best friend Jacob Batalon, and his aunt Marissa Tomei. And his aunt's boyfriend, question mark, Happy Hogan, as played by John Favreau. So with his world in ruins and he is directly affecting the lives and the well-being of his friends, because of his negative publicity, all three of him, his friends have been rejected from MIT, young Peter Parker decides to take drastic action. So he goes to Doctor Strange, as played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who he spent some time with during the Avengers movies, and asks Doctor Strange to perform a spell. A spell which will let the entire world forget that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. But once the spell is underway, Peter Parker starts interfering and says, Oh no, my Aunt May needs to know. Oh, my girlfriend MJ needs to know. And with these little additions and little changes in the midst of the spell being cast, the spell goes wrong. And the effect of this spell is that everybody who knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man from all the multiverses that are out there are brought to this reality. So basically villains from previous Spider-Man films and Spider-Man franchises come to New York. The one you see in the trailer is Alfred Molina reprising his role from the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans as Dr. Octopus. And I think that's as far as I'll go, because there is a nice sense of revelation in this film. So, 
various villains from various iterations of Spider-Man come to this reality, Tom Holland's Peter Parker reality, and he has to deal with them and deal with Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange instantly says, all right, well, we need to fix this. We need to send all these people back to their original realities. But once Tom Holland realises that as soon as they get back, they are going to get killed by Spider-Man, he can't let this lie. So he tries to rescue them, tries to fix them, and becomes an antagonist to some degree to Doctor Strange. So with multiple realities meddling with each other and interfering with each other, chaos ensues. So will this particular version of Spider-Man and this particular reality survive all these other realities crashing into it? And what consequences will there be for young Tom Holland's version of Peter Parker? I've been saying recently, when it comes to Marvel Cinematic Universe films, that they have become more and more dependent on foreknowledge, on you knowing certain things about the franchise before you even attempt to watch a film. This is the epitome of that approach. The sole purpose, the sole function of this film is nostalgia. It is connecting this version of Peter Parker with all the other versions of Peter Parker, all the other franchises which were attempted to start in the past, to this current Peter Parker. We do have Alfred Molina showing up, and the only other thing I will say, because there are some genuine nice surprises in here, I mean, I saw this in a pretty full cinema screen, and the gasps of recognition as certain people showed up on screen were delightful to see. So I don't want to go too far. But what I will say is that Alfred Molina is in this because he's in the trailer. And the only other thing I will say is that Willem Dafoe proves once again that he is a really, really good actor in a very specific way. When you give him a particular type of role... Willem Dafoe can do it exceptionally well, and he does once again here. And that's as far as I will say. But there is lots of stuff here connecting both previous versions of Spider-Man that we've tried, both the Tobey Maguire version and the Andrew Garfield version, with villains from each of those separate franchises showing up in this reality. And showing up in this reality, thanks to Doctor Strange. So we do, once again, get a lot of the reality bending and surreal kaleidoscopic visuals of the Doctor Strange film, which is very, very cool to see once again. And seeing that reality bending, that mind bending stuff going on is very cool. I mean, and connecting all these different realities. I mean, kind of like what they did in the animated feature, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And there is actually a gag at one point about, hey, I thought that Spider-Man would be black, which I think was kind of nice. And there's also other little Easter eggs put in there. I mean, like the word amazing gets used over and over again in one particular scene, which is one of those things that is equally cheesy and cool. There's also... A completely unexpected cameo that not only comes from outside 
the Spider-Man franchise within the Marvel Universe, but also within the film franchises within the Marvel Universe. That was a nice little cameo in one small scene. But yeah, that is cool because I recognised that character from where I'd seen that character before. This is a film which is entirely dependent on foreknowledge, on the recognition of, oh, that's a character from a different version of Spider-Man, from the previous Spider-Man films we've had, which don't necessarily connect to this one. That's basically the sole function of it. And seeing all these actors come back, and I think it's no accident that some of them are entirely CG creations, so you don't necessarily need to have the actors on set or pay the actors uh, an awful lot for their appearances in this film but is entirely dependent on foreknowledge. I mean, there's even another appearance from Damage Control, which has appeared previously in Spider-Man films. Unfortunately, Tyne Daly isn't reprising her role from previous films, but we do have an agent of Damage Control as the antagonist of this. I mean, Damage Control is such a cool concept, and you can easily make a really cool TV show out of this. Damage control are the people who clear up after superhero battles. They're the people who say, all right, your building was destroyed when these superpowered people had a fight. Here is your compensation. They're the people who do that. That's what they are in the comics. And in the MCU, the way that Michael Keaton got his hands on the Vulture technology, which he used to turn himself into the Vulture, he was doing clear up work for damage control. So yeah, I mean, that's another nice little connection. And again, kind of dependent on foreknowledge. And I guess I'm okay with this. I mean, in something like Black Widow, which is the first film that I thought, okay, I'm just getting too old for this shit, basically. There's all different kinds of things that have happened in various different... MCU films, and you have to remember all of them in order to pick up every single thing that's going on in the film. You need so much build up to this particular film that it is just not worth it. But here, because it is the sole function of this film that you do need foreknowledge. That's the point of it, and it's not hiding the fact that the point of this film is nostalgia and recognition of previous franchises. I can't be too angry with it. I mean, it it is what it is. It is making the subtext of previous MCU films text, and I guess I'm okay with that. I mean, I certainly had a good enough time watching this because... I have watched all those previous Spider-Man films and I recognised enough of it and remembered enough of it to fully appreciate what this film was trying to do. And it's not just previous Spider-Man films. I mean, the mid-credit sequence in Spider-Man No Way Home is directly connected to the mid-credit sequence of Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and I think found a very nice loophole in the way that Venom has been dealt with in this particular series of films. Essentially making Venom a hero slash anti-hero 
of his own franchise, when in the comic books, Venom is, or at least started out as, a definitive villain for Spider-Man. I think they painted themselves into the corner, but they've managed, in my opinion, to find a loophole where I fully expect the next standalone Spider-Man film starring Tom Holland to have Venom, or at least the Venom symbiote, as its major villain. That seems to be what they're setting up, but we're going to have to see what the team-up films look like in the sequences going forward. The post-credit sequence was rather disappointing because it's an out-and-out teaser trailer for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I mean, most post-credit sequences have been, you know, a scene from a forthcoming film that, you know, builds up the anticipation, says, ooh, look, that character's interacting with that person, whatever. But this was an out-and-out teaser trailer. I mean, fully edited from multiple different sources. That's exactly what will get released online if it hasn't been released online already. So, yeah, that was a little bit disappointing, just having a, a trailer, essentially instead of an individual scene. So yeah, it's probably not worth staying right to the end of the credits, because my guess is you can see exactly the same thing on YouTube, probably even right now. But yeah, the mid-credit sequence does connect it to the Venom franchise as well. So yeah, this is a film entirely dependent on foreknowledge and nostalgia and recognition. And on those terms, it's an entertaining enough romp, but you certainly shouldn't start with this film. Even if you've seen all three of the Tom Holland Spider-Man films, that might not even be enough, because there's so much stuff which is connected to the Maguire and Garfield Spider-Mans. I think you probably need to see all of them before watching this film, and arguably also Venom Let There Be Carnage. So, yeah, it, it is totally dependent on foreknowledge and is not trying to hide it so i had an entertaining enough time but this is the aerobarus this is a franchise eating its own tail and that's just what we're going to have to do with that is the way modern cinematic spectacle movies function and on its own terms i think spider-man no way home is a reasonably high math Next up is the American independent film Swan Song, which is written and directed by the Irish director Benjamin Cleary, who has won an Oscar for Best Short Live Action Film for his film Stutterer, and he also made another short film called Wave, which got lots of attention doing the international festival circuit, including Venice. So, Highly regarded as a short director, but Benjamin Cleary makes his feature-length debut as both writer and director with this film, Swan Song. Which follows Mahershala Ali, who is living in a near-future world. He's married to Naomi Harris. They have an adorable six-ish-year-old son together. but. Mahershala Ali is dying. He has a terminal brain tumour, which he has not yet told his wife Naomi Harris about, because 
This is a near future where new technology exists. He goes off to a remote lakeside cabin where a doctor, played by Glenn Close, offers him an alternative. We can create a clone of you, Mahershala Ali, perfect in every detail, and he will also have all your memories, even your subconscious memories. But he will not have, and will never have, this brain tumour which is going to kill you. So come to us, help us perfect this clone, and this healthy replacement for you can go back and live your life, be married to Naomi Harris, be a father to your son and your unborn child, and they won't have to live through the grief of you dying. So this is a tempting offer in many ways, but it is also an offer filled with moral and ethical quandaries and quagmires. So how will this all play out? Will the replacement Mahershala Ali be unleashed into the wild and go off and live a perfect life with Naomi Harris? This did seem like an intriguing film to me. I saw the trailer for it and I thought, oh, that's on Apple Plus TV. I'll have to pirate that eventually. But it was available in cinemas. Briefly available in cinemas. I doubt it's available anymore. But you will be able to watch it on Apple Plus TV or actually legal means. But I was intrigued by this. I mean, this idea of being entirely replaced by somebody if you're dying, making the decision to protect the rest of your family from grief without telling them about it. I mean, the idea is that the dying Mahershala Ali goes to sleep one night and is replaced by in the morning by this replacement, who in turn will never know that they are a clone, they are a replacement. Their memory will have been wiped. So what is the moral and ethical minefield of this situation? Can you actually let go? Can you actually allow somebody else or something else to take your place? It might be an absolutely perfect representation of you with all your thoughts, all your feelings, all your memories, all your emotions, but it's still not you. And can you deal with it? And Yeah, there's some really, really interesting questions raised here. And this technology is not so far from reality. Honestly, I don't think the specifics, you know, a a perfect facsimile of somebody, I don't think that will ever be possible thanks to the vagaries of quantum mechanics. If you have a perfect molecule by molecule representation, of somebody. If you observe the molecule in order to replicate it, it will change. That is the tenets of quantum mechanics. I mean, quantum mechanics is just so bizarre. But anyway, I mean, this is still just ahead of modern technology. I mean, the opening scene is Mahershala Ali on a train, on a commuter train, it eventually turns out. And a stark white robot comes up to him and says, Hello, 
Mahersha Ali. Here is the coffee order that you usually have. And would you like a chocolate bar as well? I already have your payment details. I mean, and this is the first time this robot has ever seen this. And he knows all this thing instantly already. Because you've got cameras on your contact lenses and Wi-Fi connected earbuds in constantly. So everything is connected. Everything is automated. Mahershala Ali, other than using the train, gets around using a driverless car. This is all technology which is just a little bit ahead of our own. And honestly, personally for me, raised alarming questions. When the world is so automated, how much autonomy do you actually have? But that's a, a side issue. The real issue here is the morals and ethics of this situation. I mean, do you protect your family without telling them about it? And we, we see through flashbacks that Mahershala Ali has a very specific reason why he doesn't think it's a good idea to put Naomi Harris through some grief because she is already dealing with some personal grief in her past and it really didn't go well last time. So Mahershala Ali wants to avoid that, even if it means going off and dying without telling her and replacing him with a perfect facsimile of himself. There's lots of interesting moral questions put here. I mean, also at this remote lakeside facility is the last person that this was done for. Aquafina, in a more or less straight cameo appearance from her, but she has also gone through this same process, and her replacement is already off and living Aquafina's life in the real world. And her reaction to it is. Uh, a mirror and a, in places a contrast to the way that Mahershala Ali is reacting to it. I mean, uh, I love Aquafina. Even in this basically straight role, she can't help but have that deadpan, humorous delivery, which Aquafina does so well. But having these conversations with people who have had this done to them before, having conversations with Glenn Close, the doctor who's doing this, and living in this highly, highly automated world, at least for me, it brought up uncomfortable questions as to where reality and humanity is actually going. So, yeah, it's an intriguing film on those fronts, but it also has some emotional heft to it. The idea of Mahershala Ali, the dying Mahershala Ali, sitting back and observing his life at a remove through these contact lens cameras in the eyes of his replacement. The detached observational reality of this, it's a little bit like a less surreal version of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, being removed from your reality and observing it to some degree does help. I mean, it also brings to mind Hirokatsu Kuroeda's After Life. And there's also a little bit of ex machina in this about you know, a highly advanced technology being perpetrated in a remote, isolated, very, very modern architecturally cabin. 
so there there are things here i mean even a simple thing like after the meet cute on this commuter train between naomi harris and mahershala ali naomi harris doesn't give him her phone number he gives him her twitter handle or social media handle which thinking about it is probably actually quite common nowadays i mean i must admit i've had that experience for quite some time but that's you know a, a tiny little observational thing showing the reality the the futuristic aspects of this and the things which directly connect to mahershala ali's future or lack of a future the fact that naomi harris is pregnant and this the original mahershala ali the dying mahershala ali will almost certainly never see his next child born he will probably be dead before that and yet the lost potential of that i mean a direct representation of everything that will be lost everything that is being given up it's actually quite poignant and in places some of these flashbacks some of the uh, the memories which need to be synced up between the two versions of mahershala ali it's these dreamlike sequences, these short sequences which flow into one another. It kind of reminded me of Terence Malick, and I'm sure that's a deliberate tribute to Terence Malick. But yeah, it's got all these things in it about lost potential, lost reality, observing your life moving on without you. Asking the fundamental question, is it right to secretly do this away from your wife, Naomi Harris? You are making the decision for her to protect her. You might have good reasons for doing it, and arguably very good reasons for doing it, given how we see Naomi Harris wrecked into grief in the past. But it's still making that decision for her. And I don't think there's any really easy answers i think maybe the film itself whiffs that a little bit towards the end and doesn't go for the really complicated thoughts and feelings it it settles on something a little bit simpler a little bit more sentimental so i i don't think it fully embraces the moral questions but it's still a beautiful poignant thought-provoking film and yeah, I did really, really like it. So yeah, available through Apple Plus TV. I doubt it's still available at the cinemas by the time this comes out, but you should be able to find it. And I do recommend it because for me, Swan Song is a yay. I did really like it. Next up is the Belgian film Lola and the Sea which has also been released as just Lola, and its original title in French is Lola vers la mer. It tells the story of Lola, an 18-year-old trans girl played by Maya Bolaires, who is living in a hostel for LGBTQ plus kids who have been kicked out of their homes, but is screwing up her courage to go home for her mother's funeral. But when she gets there, she is horrified to discover that her 
unsympathetic father, Benoit Majimel, who all those years ago was the kid from Hanukkah's The Piano Teacher. And honestly, I did not recognize him. But anyway, Benoit Majimel has never accepted his son transitioning. So he deliberately told Maya Bolaire's the wrong time for the funeral. And Lola has missed her own mother's funeral. Angry and grief-stricken, she steals her mother's ashes and takes them back to the hostel, where eventually Benoit Majumel finds them and insists on taking the ashes. And in accordance with his dead wife's wishes, Benoit Majumel wants to take the ashes to the coast in order to scatter them near I'm not sure if it's his wife's childhood home or simply a holiday home, but it's where the dead wife wanted her ashes spread, so that's what he's going to do. And Lola insists on coming along with her father, and these two people who do not understand each other, don't particularly like each other, are forced to spend time together as they travel to the coast in order to scatter their dead mother slash wife's ashes and truths come out conversations are had possibly for the first time and will any accommodation be made between this confused and quite frankly disgusted father and this trans girl who's just trying to make it in her life I was somewhat intrigued by this, but I do have a minor issue with this in the fact that the director of this film, Laurent Miscelli, is, as far as I can tell, a cis gay man, but he's telling a trans story. And that's kind of the same thing with another Belgian film from a few years ago, Girl. That too was directed and written by a cis gay man, and I really, really hated the final few moments, the final ideas of Girl. Which annoyed me, because up until that point, I was really, really on board with the film Girl, but the last idea it left me with was very uncomfortable, and I don't think a trans writer-director would have done that. So I was a little bit concerned when I realised that Lola and the Sea was being directed by a cis man. But, I mean, it's not my place to say, but as far as I can tell, it's reasonably sensitive. And I'm sure that Maya Bolas herself would have made changes if she thought that any were necessary. I mean, apparently this is her first time acting. She just answered a casting call for a trans young person to appear in this film. I mean, she was about 23 when she filmed it, even though she's playing 18. But, yeah, I'm, I hope, at least, that if there was anything really against a trans point of view, then Maya Blairs would have said something. But, I mean, that's what this is. This is a road trip between these two people who do not get along. And a little bit of accommodation, a little bit of understanding being had along the way. I mean, this 
seems to be the first time that this father and child have actually sat down together for any extended period of time and talked to each other. Simply hearing about her own father's disappointments and frustrations with his life and how he didn't have the life he anticipated. He ended up running his father's hardware shop, which he didn't necessarily want to do. And I don't think it's any mistake that this hardware shop is called Ronsart and Son. I noticed that that's the the sign on this hardware shop. But, I mean, hearing about her father's disappointments and frustrations opens Maya Belair's eyes a little bit. I mean, and just the simple little thing, like, eventually Maya Belair sits in the front seat. I mean, most of this journey, she is in the back seat, and I think that's a very deliberate choice, makes it very impersonal. These are not people who are connected anyway, but eventually she does sit in the front seat, and she uses the um, sunshade mirror to put eyeline pencil on, and simply observing his son, as far as he's concerned, doing this, starts to open up Benoit Majumel's eyes. And just spending time together is enough to have a tiny bit of accommodation. I mean, there is a scene towards the end where Benoit Majumel asks very blunt, very insensitive questions of his child. The kind of questions you probably shouldn't ask a trans person, but in his own way, this is his version of trying. He's trying his best. He's trying to understand. And he's just doing it in a pretty blunt, pretty insensitive way. But Maya Belair's just lets it roll off her back. I mean, I'm sure she's had questions like this in the past. And I like the fact that this is not a complete 180 as far as Benoit Majumel is concerned. I mean, this is not, you know, I have been so wrong, I will embrace my daughter. I know I don't have a son, I have a daughter. I mean, it it doesn't end up being that. It's not a situation where Benoit Majumel is fully understanding or fully reconciled with his child. But the one specific thing at this exact moment in time that he needs to do in order to be supportive, he does. And you know, it, it's one very small, well, in the grand scheme of things, it's a very small thing, but he does it. And I like the fact that you know, the, there is a tiny crack in the dam and possibly maybe down the road, fully embracing his daughter will happen but it hasn't happened yet i mean in this sort of two days basically that they're together it's not a complete transformation and i do like that i do appreciate that it it has the honesty it has the reality to it i mean because complicated situations like this just are not resolved in two days it just doesn't happen particularly when we start from such a bad place. I mean, the utter rejection that Benoit Majumel shows at the beginning, deliberately telling his child the wrong time for his wife's funeral, not wanting his child at the wake, and making it a scene, basically, to 
publicly and openly reject his child. I mean, this is some harsh truths, some harsh realities, which are demonstrated at the beginning of this film. And to have that changed in just two days would not have been believable. I do think it's believable that the first small step has been taken, but a complete embracing of his daughter, I don't think would have been believable. And that's not what we end up having. So yeah, I I do like the way that we see Benoit Majumal working through this. I mean, and seeing the psychological pressures of this, seeing himself as a failure because his child is broken and, in his words, needs to be fixed like a car, which, again, not particularly sensitive. And the brutal way he treats his child at the beginning of this film with you know a, a stronger level of confusion and even disgust. But, I mean, the fact that he is clearly still grieving for his recently dead wife certainly doesn't help either. So there's lots of emotional journeys going on here. And I do like the way that the whole thing plays out. And, yeah, I think this is kind of the film I was expecting. And I think it's been handled in a reasonably sensitive way. There's certainly ways in which this film could have gone very, very wrong. Even with the best of intentions, a film like Girl, I think, got it catastrophically wrong at the end. But here, it's low-key enough and the advances are small enough that I do buy it, I do believe it. I think both performances from both Maya Belairs and Benoit Majumal are excellent. And I think Lola and the Sea is a nice little film. And I do basically recommend it. So for me, Lola and the Sea, which at time of recording is still in cinemas, but probably won't be by the time this actually gets released. But however you manage to see it, I do think that Lola and the Sea is a very high meh. And finally, we have the Icelandic film Lamb, which officially came out a couple of weeks ago, and I was planning to see, but my schedule changed at the last minute, and I never managed to. Then on Wednesday, it was among the 15-film long list for international feature competition, and thankfully, I still had just enough time. There was you know, one, or actually, no, there were two more screenings that I could get to before it left cinemas forever. So I hurried along and managed to see it. But by the time this comes out, I'll be very, very surprised if you can find Lamb in your local cinema. But it will be down on record and you can have some thought of what to watch when it comes out on streaming. But in any case, Lamb is written and directed by Valdemar Johansson. This is his feature-length debut, and on IMDb, he has a lot of credits as an electrician and camera operator. Films that end up filming on Iceland, like Rogue One, or Prometheus, or Fast and Furious 8, and even Game of Thrones. He has a lot of credits as a grip and a gaffer and a camera operator. 
which is plausible or equally there could just be another person on Iceland working in the film industry called Valdemar Johansson. But either way, this is his feature length debut and the script is co-written by Sean, who is an Icelandic author and poet and also lyricist. He has collaborated frequently with Björk all the way back to her Sugar Cubes days. Among other things, Sean has written the song Isabel, which I actually really, really like. So yeah, Sean is a pretty big deal. He's also co-written David Eggers' new film, The North Man, which is due out in April. So that's something to look forward to and a bit of prestige for this Icelandic film, which already has some backing behind it because it won a prize, not the major prize, but it won a prize in the Uncertain Regard section of the 2021 Cannes Film Festival. So I really should have anticipated it would end up on the 15 film long list, but. Anyway, yeah, but there were some rather surprising omissions from that list, which I'll probably be talking about a bit later. But in any case, Lamb did make the 15 film long list, and I still had just enough time to see it, so I did. This film stars Numi Rapace, acting in Icelandic. Apparently she spent three years as a child growing up on Iceland and still speaks fluent Icelandic and has been known to give press interviews in Icelandic. Which just makes me even more impressed with Numi Rapace. And I was impressed enough as was. I've seen Numi Rapace in three films during 2021. In The Secrets We Keep, she was acting in English. In The Trip, she was acting in Norwegian, and now in Lamb, she's acting in Icelandic. Three films released in the UK during 2021, and in none of them is she speaking her native Swedish. I'm just so impressed with Numi Rapace, but in any case, Numi Rapace plays a farmer in the remote mountains of Iceland. She and her husband, Hilmir Snare Goodnesson, work the land, but there is a pall of melancholy hanging over them. They go about their daily lives, but something is clearly missing. But in the opening sequences, what seems to be some kind of beast or something, or it certainly sounds like a beast, but it looks like a point of view shot from something, which is going through this snowbound, fogbound farm. It's basically an entire whiteout where you know a herd of Icelandic ponies scatters scared and a herd of sheep scatters scared. But something is slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. But something has happened in the sheep pan. Roll forward to spring and it's lambing season and it looked to me like Hilmar Snare Goodnesson and Numi Rapace were really giving birth to lambs in that sequence. But during lambing season, something is born. And Numi Rapace instantly connects with it and takes it into the house and starts raising it as her own child. And this continues on a pace. 
we get glimpses here and there that something is odd about this thing that has been born. There's a lot more anthropomorphization than you would anticipate from a lamb. But this grief-stricken couple are raising this thing as their daughter. But eventually, Hilmis Ned Goodnison's irresponsible brother, Bjorn Kleiner Haraldson, shows up. And he observes what is happening and is horrified. So with this third party observing the secretive life that they are living with their child, will this fantasy maintain itself, particularly when the originator of this thing is also still out there. So will there be consequences to this fable-like situation? Looking at the trailer for this film, Lamb, it gives hints here and there of something going on. There is a little bit of anthropomorphization even in the trailer, which I think has its pros and cons because as you are watching the film if you've seen the trailer you do see here and there little glimpses little hints of anthropomorphization so you know that something supernatural something folkloric even is happening and that has a power in and of itself but if during the majority of the first half of the film we were not entirely sure if Nomi Rapace, this grief-stricken woman, has just adopted a lamb and is raising it as her own. That would be disturbing on a different level and tragic on a different level. But we are always, always aware that there is something strange about this thing that has been born. And that puts it in a very folkloric a very folk horror kind of context particularly in this opening scene where something is grunting and moving around this farm and we only ever see it from the pov shot so the opening scene of this film you know that there seems to be some kind of beast or some kind of entity which is around in this very fog-strewn farm i mean i'm not sure i've ever seen a film where fog played quite so much of a part. So many scenes in this film are absolutely covered in fog, or snow, and in some cases both. Nature is a definitive part of this, uh, and nature fighting back, nature inhabiting something, uh, and interfering with the path of nature has its consequences. I mean, throughout the first half of the film, as Numi Rapace is raising this thing as her daughter, the sheep, the ewe that gave birth to it, is constantly outside the house and making a noise, you know, bleating at the window. To the extent, I mean, there's a scene where Numi Rapace and Hilma Snare Goodnison are sitting down watching television together 
and they can't always hear what's being said on the television because of the loud bleating of the sheep outside the window. The sheep knows that something is wrong. The sheep wants its offspring back. And you know, nature will not be denied. And yeah, I mean, there, there are consequences for this whole thing. And you know, the concerted, willful ignoring of the consequences of this sheep making a nuisance of herself constantly, just having willful ignorance of it. You know, I will have my daughter. I do not care about the consequences until there are consequences. And yeah, there are definitive folk horror aspects of this thing by the end but it has such a, a detached a dreamlike situation to it i mean this is a film which is very very light on dialogue particularly before the brother shows up in the second half of the film the first half of the film is very very light on dialogue i mean the scene where this thing is born plays out completely silently i mean they are alerted to a sheep giving birth by their dog and they go in and silently help the sheep give birth and then when it emerges we as an audience don't see it but they see it and you know they are shocked aghast at this thing in front of them but then they start looking at each other and without saying a word, Numi Rapace just picks it up and is clearly about to raise it as her own. And it's completely dialogue-free. And throughout the course of the film, there is very, very little dialogue. When there doesn't need to be dialogue, there isn't. So much is done with body language, so much is done with glances, so much is done with action. It's a very, very silent, very, very slow film. And, yeah, you might struggle to get on board with it fully, but if you're on this film's wavelength, I think it's a good approach to take. I don't think it was a choice to cover up Numi Rapace's voice. I mean, like I said, as far as I'm aware, she speaks fluent Icelandic. Actually, I wonder if she speaks it with an accent, which might need to be covered up. I mean, obviously, I haven't got a good enough ear to know if she's speaking Icelandic with a Swedish accent. But maybe that has something to do with the dialogue. But either way, it's an effective way the film has been told. With you know, a major, major life decision, you know, I am going to raise this lamb as my own achieved without any dialogue whatsoever it's a really effective way of doing it and yeah i think this has a layer of ominous intensity to it a layer of fatalism to some degree to it you just know that this is not going to end entirely happily it's just how it's not going to end happily and yeah, I mean, there will be consequences. When you mess with the course of nature, which is what Numi Rapace has done, there will be consequences. And can you deal with those consequences? And yeah, it's an intriguing little film. I personally don't think it's going to end up on my 
list of Oscar nominees. I mean, I haven't honestly seen very many of them. I think of the 15 film long list, I think this is the fourth I've seen. So not very many, but I doubt it will be one of my personal choices. I would be surprised if it was a real nominee as well. But you can honestly never tell with the foreign language Oscar race sometimes, or the international feature Oscar race sometimes. So, yeah, we'll have to see how that plays out. I mean, as I said, I very much doubt that Lamb will still be available in cinemas because I only just managed to see it in a cinema. But either way, when and if you get to see Lamb, I do basically recommend it. And for me, it is an intriguing, solid meh. Home Movies Last Train to Christmas is another one of the cheesy festive films which have been released over recent weeks. This one released directly onto Sky Cinema. It has been written and directed by Julian Kemp, who has a couple of low-key British indie films in his past, but has spent most of his career in children's television, particularly working a lot with Dick and Dom. But this film stars Michael Sheen, and we start in the 1980s, as Michael Sheen is a nightclub promoter in 1985 who owns the second biggest club in Nottingham, but is just about to open six more nightclubs. He's a bit of a flash wide boy. He's got a hot young fiance in Natalie Emmanuel, and he is travelling back a couple of days before Christmas, home to Nottingham from London, and along the way is trying to reconnect with his mildly estranged brother, played by Carrie Elwes, which is odd casting, but this loud mildly obnoxious kind of Peter Stringfellow kind of character who has a little bit of toxic masculinity who doesn't particularly listen to his fiance Natalie Emmanuel is determined that he is going to be the biggest nightclub promoter in Nottingham orders champagne for the entire train carriage but he wants to be seen as a success but he also wants to try and persuade his brother to rejoin the family business and join him once again as the owner and promoter of these nightclubs in Nottingham. Something which Carrie Elwes is reluctant to do since he's actually got a rather nice little gig working for a company that makes headphones for curries. So these two brothers try to reconnect and when Michael Sheen heads off to try and get some champagne for the entire train carriage he realises that if he moves forward in this train, he moves forward 10 years in time. So he can work out, oh, these nightclubs might not be as successful. Maybe I do need to try and persuade my brother even more. And when he moves backwards and forwards in time, each carriage backward and forward, either moves him forward 10 years or back 10 years. And he starts to explore his life and explore the decisions which he makes and the effects that they can have. If you make a decision in 1985, you can head forward into the carriage and see what decision that makes in 1995. And it's not always good. So, so far, so 
variation on A Christmas Carol. But along the way of this time travelling and jumping forward in time, he starts to piece together a family secret. And this ends up making up the majority of the film as he tries to process and work through this family secret, this family trauma, and the true core of his relationship with his brother, Carrie Elwes. So can he fix his family relationship? Can he remain the success that he sees himself to be? And can he keep his hands on Natalie Emmanuel, who doesn't always end up with him when he travels forward into the future? Will this magical Christmas train solve all these problems? So I was intrigued by this film because, yeah, Michael Sheen's a great actor, and the premise of moving forward in a train carriage and going forwards and backwards in time and assessing where your life is going, the decisions you make, having an instant answer as to what these decisions will do, an exploration of causality. That was very intriguing to me, but. I think the fundamental problem I had with The Last Train to Christmas is it's not really about Christmas and it's not really about time travel, the two things that I was sold on. Once you start to piece together, oh, there's something very complicated in the deep background of these two brothers, Michael Sheen and Carrie Elwes, it instantly switches over from if I go backwards and forwards in time, I can figure out the different paths my, my life can go, you know, the mistakes I can avoid, that kind of thing. I mean, if I do this thing, I know that it ends badly 10 years down the line. So I'll go back and change it. I mean, that's an interesting concept. But once you realise that fundamentally this is a, a film about the relationship between the brothers and the, and the deep family secret that accidentally gets uncovered when Michael Sheen goes backwards and forwards in time. We only ever focus on that one story. It becomes all about fixing the relationship between these two brothers and processing and understanding the relationship between these two brothers. So the majority of the film just gets stuck in this one timeline where you see all the mistakes that are connected to this family secret which gets uncovered. So it ends up being one story about one alternative future and all the stages along that path instead of maybe something, maybe something like Primer, you know, seeing you know, the little changes that you make in one year and see what happens a decade down the line or two decades down the line. That was intriguing to me, but having this one story, this one timeline taking up the majority of the film, it's just not all that interesting at the end of the day, or at least I didn't find it particularly interesting at the end of the day. It does have some interesting little ticks to it. I mean, we started in 1985, so the cinematography is very square, you know, very video quality, very much like television was back in 1985. It weirdly reminded me of the Pablo Larraín film No, which was shot in that 1980s video stock to give uh, an evoke a time and place. 
and eventually we have a brief sequence which goes all the way back to 1945 when Michael Sheen's character is only five years old. And that is you know, in black and white and has the, the stark cinematography and the bombastic music of that period of film history. So changing the film stock slightly when you change your time period, cool concept, but I honestly don't quite think they had the budget to fully pull that off. Like Danny Boyle did in his film Jobs with three completely different types of film stock for the three different time periods in that film. I mean, apart from the 80s video look and the 40s black and white look, not a great deal is done with that. But it's still cool to see it done when it is done. I like the fact that one of the signposts, one of the ways that Michael Sheen realises he's travelling backward and forward in time is the number of the Now That's What I Call Music compilation that it currently is. and. Since he's from 1985, what are these things called? CDs. That was a nice little concept. I also like the fact that Michael Sheen's partner, Anna Lundberg, is in one of these sequences in a rather problematic role, actually. I mean, not a very good influence on the life of that particular version of Michael Sheen in what that must be, 1965, I think that would be in. But in any case, this is a really, really good concept with a really good cast. I mean, Michael Sheen and Carrie Elwes at the centre of it. There's a brief appearance by John Thompson, a small role for Phyllis Logan, who is always nice to see. Even Robin Asquith shows up for a brief appearance, which is... uh, interesting so yeah i mean it it's got lots of things which should tick boxes but the fact that it decides to focus on one specific timeline on one alternative reality and have it so closely related to this deep dark family secret which connects and splits apart this pair of brothers it ends up not being a particularly gripping tale. I think the central concept and the cast of this is very good, but it's a wasted opportunity as far as I'm concerned. I I just don't think that the story we get is the best story that could have been told out of this premise. I also think the ending is far more tragic than the film realises it is. I mean, you want some semblance of a happy ending, but the way that a happy ending is achieved in this film is to push Michael Sheen's character far into the future. So his happy ending is that he hasn't experienced the good 30, 40 years of his life. Is that a happy ending? I don't think it is. So, yeah, I think this film ended up being so razor-focused on one particular aspect, it didn't have time to explore and have fun with its concept, which is a good and a fun concept. So, 
there is some good acting. There is some nice signposting about the different eras in which this film takes place in. So it's an okay watch. It's an entertaining enough watch, I guess. Since it is on Sky Cinema, you can just click the button and watch it. And yeah, you'll probably have a decent enough time doing that. But really, Last Train to Christmas, I think, is a wasted opportunity. And for me, it's a pretty low meh. The first of the three streaming films, which I needed to watch quickly before their rental period expired, was Wild Indian. A film written and directed by the Native American director Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr. And it tells the story of a Native American man, Michael Gray Eyes. Or rather, we start in the 1980s, where a teenage Native boy and his cousin are being ostracised and excluded from their largely white high school. This teenage native boy, brilliantly played by Phoenix Wilson, has an abusive, a very abusive father and a completely indifferent mother, and his only friend is his cousin, played by Julian Gopal. One day in the woods... These two Native American teenage boys are responsible for the death of one of their classmates when they're all alone in the woods. And these teenage Native boys decide to cover up this death and try and move on with their lives. And Phoenix Wilson, this abused native boy uses this as a a moment of empowerment to try and stand up for himself and to some degree fix his situation as much as you can fix a situation when you're about 13 so it's a moment of empowerment even though it is an incredibly dark moment and we scroll forward to the present day or rather 2019 where this teenage boy is now Michael Grey Eyes, who is almost fully assimilated into the white world. The very first thing we see Michael Grey Eyes do is play golf. And if that isn't a symbol of being assimilated into a white way of life, I'm not sure what is. But Michael Grey Eyes is respected in his business. He has an obsequious white colleague played by Jesse Eisenberg, who also acted as an executive producer on this film. Michael Grouse is also married to a white woman, Kate Bosworth, who is pregnant with their second child. Something which Michael Grouse seems a little bit ambivalent about, but it is clear that the terrible things which happened when he was a child are still haunting him. And this is made even worse when his cousin, who was there on him that fateful day, gets released from prison, having spent most of his life being a petty criminal in and out of jail, a drug dealer, fighter, that kind of thing. But now he's out of jail and is heavily tattooed, and his cousin Chaske Spencer goes from Wisconsin, where 
they grew up on this native Ojibwe land to California, where Michael Greyeyes now lives with Kate Bosworth. And the arrival of Chuske Spencer means that Michael Greyeyes finally needs to confront the terrible things that happened to him and that he did whilst he was a child. This is a fascinating film. I love the fact that we have a situation where a native writer-director can make a film about native stories and have it be this compelling and show the complicated interrelationship between identity and culture and assimilation. I mean, how assimilated can you be? How assimilated should you be? You know, married to a white woman, about to have a second child with a white woman, successful in your job, but you are in this clean, pristine Californian world. And is that right? Particularly when it is clear that Michael Grower still has severe issues. Even as an adult, he carries around this bullet casing, reminding him of that fateful day. I mean, he cannot let this go. He doesn't want to let this go because it was a moment of empowerment. I mean, after this tragic incident, he did start to stand up to his abusive father. He did eventually escape, so to speak, and move out to California and start a new life, a good life for himself. But he is still traumatised and troubled by his past. It becomes apparent in a rather disturbing scene that Michael Greyeyes has some rather extreme fetishes and also a very controlling, a very demanding attitude. He seems to be going through the motions of a normal life and barely maintaining the facade of normalcy, there's always something just underneath the surface. I mean, you could argue that he might not pass the psychopath test. He seems to be deeply ambivalent about his relationship with his wife, Kate Bosworth, and the imminent arrival of a second child. When Chaske Spencer, his cousin, comes around and by the way Chaske Spencer is excellent in this film I mean there's a couple of scenes where we see the traumas that he suffered and the path that he took after this tragic instance in their youth and yeah some brilliant acting and a pretty small role for Chaske Spencer showing that each in their own way both of these native kids in Wisconsin were traumatised by this event, but they both took different parts and both dealt with it in different ways. Michael Greyeyes tamped it down, you know, repressed it, pushed it far, far to the back of his psyche and tried to pretend he had a normal life. Whereas Chaske Spencer just completely lost it, went into drug dealing, went into fighting, in and out of jail, heavily tattooed. You know, he's got Ojibwe tattooed across his neck. I mean, the native tribe which they come from. And a huge bear paw on the side of his face. 
and with a criminal record and with facial tattoos, it's difficult to get a job, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, the different paths that these lives have taken, all stemming from this one tragic incident, it's really, really fascinating to see. And it's, it's also got some interesting things to say about the modern native experience and the heritage that you come from and maybe even possibly are trying to hide. The film actually opens in the Ojibwe language. There's a, a sequence telling a fable of a native man who got sick for a bit and decided to travel west. And when we actually see him, we realize, oh shit, he's got smallpox. But this is kind of the heritage, the history of native populations. And that's the only time that the Ojibwe language is used. So, I mean, that is a metaphor for the, the native experience. There's one really telling and really brilliant line which comes up later in the film where Michael Grouse talks about the sorry state of native populations in the modern world and says anybody worthwhile died fighting. We are the descendants of the cowards, and that's why our life is so problematic. And I think that is a, a rather telling, and you know, not really an angle I've ever heard from a native filmmaker, not that I've had much experience with native filmmakers, but the different lives you lead, the different nations you belong to. I mean, are you Ojibwe or are you American? Or are you even Canadian? Because most of the Ojibwe live in Canada and there's some distinctly Canadian accents in the native shot sequences. But it's got all these different questions to answer. I mean, and... Yeah, brilliant acting from Michael Grouse, Chaske Spencer, and the young Phoenix Wilson. Really interesting script by Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr. And I'm really fascinated to see what he comes up with next. I think it drifts a little bit towards the end. I think a little bit more focus might have been needed. It's a bit of a meditation rather than an exploration of this man's situation. So I say this is a very high meh, but I do still say that Wild Indian, available on streaming platforms, is worth seeing. So yeah, for me, it is a very high meh. Next up is a very low-key American indie film called The Last Days of Capitalism, which is written and directed by Adam Mervis, who, as a writer, wrote the Chadwick Boseman film 21 Bridges, which, honestly, I wasn't the biggest fan of. And he also wrote a film called National Champions, which I'm actually rather interested in seeing, even though it's unlikely to be released cinematically here in the UK because it's about American football. Talking about college American football players, student athletes, who make a protest and 
call for unionisation. Something which there is actually a strong argument for. But yeah, it looks like a protesting film about the exploitation of young student athletes who do not get paid, but make millions for other people. Kind of like an American football version of the Steven Soderbergh film High Flying Bird about basketball. But yeah, I am curious about national champions if and when I ever get to see that. But for the meantime, Adam Mervis has written and directed for the first time this feature film, The Last Days of Capitalism, in which a man and a woman, Mike Fayola and Sarah Rose Harper, wake up together in a penthouse suite in Las Vegas. This is a somewhat awkward situation. Sarah Rose Harper clearly didn't intend to spend the night in this penthouse after this one-night stand, which was almost certainly of a transactional nature. So after a bit of awkward small talk in the morning over some room service breakfast, Mike Fayola makes an offer. I will give you $5,000 if you just stay with me over this weekend in this Las Vegas penthouse. And after a bit of calculation, Sarah Rose Harper agrees. And eventually, after more and more things are requested of her, the price for this weekend in this hotel room goes up and up and up. And eventually, tens of thousands of dollars are on the line for all this guy to spend time with this young woman and as this man and this woman spent roughly 72 hours together in this las vegas penthouse they have discussions with each other about relationships about sex and about money lots of conversations about money and the process of money We live in a system which is dependent on belief in this thing called money. Who's to say this piece of paper in front of us or this piece of metal in front of us has any value whatsoever? It's only because we trust that it does have value that the system functions. And increasingly in the modern day, how does this digital piece of information have value and have appropriate things you can? achieve with it and purchase with it so there's a lot of conversations about money as this man and this woman spend 72 hours together in a las vegas hotel room and this is a two-handed film which is entirely set in this las vegas penthouse over the course of about three days and it's just two people talking together and In general, that is the kind of film I appreciate. Films like The End of the Tour, Southside With You, The Before Trilogy, The Two Popes. These kinds of films, in general, are things which I gravitate towards. But this one has issues, as far as I'm concerned. It becomes pretty clear pretty early that a lot of the conversations in this film are going to be about money 
between the title of this film, Last Days of Capitalism, is actually very appropriate. I mean, this rich man and the woman who he is paying to spend time with him and to have sex with him, that puts every conversation in a very different context. I mean, the power dynamics are very clearly codified, are rigidly structured right from the start. And having these conversations about the financial system, having a sequence where this young woman is encouraged to essentially gamble $3 million of this man's money on the Hong Kong stock market, I mean, eventually we get to that stage. And the conversations that are had about money, about privilege, and the ways that that privilege plays itself out. You know, this white guy who it emerges is immensely rich, he can just buy anything he wants, and that includes a person, essentially, which is what he's done for this weekend. Yes, he has issues in the past. I mean, whenever this guy's father is brought up, or he brings up his father, it's clear that there are severe issues in that direction. But he is a man who is spending money in order to get over his issues. And is that healthy? No, it's not. And we're not really going to explore that. We're just going to talk about money. We're going to talk about capitalism. We're going to talk about a financial situation in which this kind of situation is not only possible, it's kind of expected that rich white men will exploit younger people, particularly women. And that's ultimately what we're talking about here. And there is some philosophy that gets brought into this. I mean, Sarah Rose Harper brings up God very early in the film and repeatedly brings up God. And by the end of the film, it's revealed that's possibly even disingenuous. So what was the point of doing it in the first place? I mean, this does go to some rather strange places. And I think the intention for writer-director Adam Mervis is that by the end of the film, we realise, oh, he didn't have the power after all. Mike Fiola isn't the one in charge. It's actually Sarah Rose Harper. I think that's what Adam Mervis was intending to do. But he did it really, really inelegantly. And by the time the reversal happens, if you can even call it a reversal, it, it was just such an unpleasant situation. I didn't really want to engage with it anymore. And being so much about capitalism, I mean, repeatedly throughout the course of the film, Mike Filer talks about the hologram of money and wealth. We see it, but we can't necessarily touch it, we can't necessarily interact with it, which I think is a decent enough metaphor. But there's so much white male privilege going on in here. I mean, there's one point where Mike Fiola, whilst incredibly high on cocaine, makes an argument for the legalisation of prostitution. Now, it's not actually the worst argument, it has to be said, but 
it's a male argument, it's a privileged argument, it's an argument made whilst incredibly high, and it also completely fails to take into account one of the major issues with the prostitution world we live in at the moment, and that's people trafficking. But that's just one of many ways in which Mike Fayola tries to mansplain the situation to Sarah Rose Harper. And as well as being rich and male, he's also quite a few years older than Sarah Rose Harper. I mean, there's bits where Sarah Rose Harper doesn't know what the Karate Kid is or doesn't know who Belinda Carlisle is. And when you have this kind of power dynamic in place, things get a little bit uncomfortable. It's called out pretty early in the film. Sarah Rose Harper saying, you want to play make-believe. And that's kind of what he wants to do. And yeah, I, I think there's potential here for really interesting conversations. I mean, genuine conversations between a rich, privileged white man and a younger woman who arguably is being exploited in this situation. If we really delved into the depths of this situation, it could have been quite interesting. But instead, time and time again, the idea of money is brought up. The idea of capitalism is brought up. And then when the final revelation is made towards the end, and to some degree the tables are turned, it's really not done in an elegant way. It's blunt statements, obvious statements, being made in overly flowery ways. And that's ultimately what Last Days of Capitalism comes down to. Again, similarly to Last Trace Christmas I was talking about earlier, I think there is potential here, but it's just not been executed very well at all. So, for me, I just don't think that Last Days of Capitalism was quite worth it. There was potential here, and there are some good moments here, but it's drowned out by undercooked and overly blunt statements to be made. And, I mean, it doesn't help. I mean, it's not a deal-breaker, but it doesn't help that this was clearly a very, very cheap film. I mean, it is just in one room over the course of three days with two actors. I mean, it's basically as cheap a film as you can make. And this wouldn't be a deal-breaker in and of itself, but it is worth noting that the sound mixing in this film is really off. The sound quality from moment to moment, from scene to scene, does vary wildly. It's one of those things that you don't notice and you shouldn't notice until it's done badly. And when you have a situation where the sound mixing is off, you know that there just wasn't enough money to properly do this. And it's a shame, but it is a factor that goes into this. I mean, this isn't the most passionate nay I've ever given, but at the end of the day, the last days of capitalism is, in my mind, not worth it. It's making blunt, obvious points in roundabout ways. It thinks it's much more clever than it actually is. So, yeah, it's not a particularly passionate name, but nevertheless, The Last Days of Capitalism, available on streaming platforms, is 
a nay from me. And the final streaming film I needed to watch before its rental period expired was another micro-budget American film called The Way You Look Tonight. Written and directed by first-time director John Cerrito, this stars Nick Fink as a 20-something man in Los Angeles who, with the encouragement of his baby sister and his roommate, signs up for a dating app and spends a wonderful night with a young woman played by Bailey Noble. They really connect. They can't help but fall into bed together. And after a wonderful night together, in the morning, Bailey Noble has just disappeared. And Nick Fink is completely heartbroken. But again, with the encouragement of his baby sister, Juliet Goglia, and his roommate, Shane Coffey, he continues using this dating app and has a series of encounters with various other women, all of which are wearing the same very distinctive bright green hoodie that Bailey Noble was wearing the first time they spent the night together. So all of these women wearing the same green hoodie and the interactions with these new women all have various overlaps with things that were talked about or things that came up on this first date with Bailey Noble. So is there some kind of connection with all these women and this wonderful night that Nick Fink spent with Bailey Noble? What is going on? Is there some kind of mystical thing happening with all these different women, possibly even being the same woman or aspects of the same woman or something? But something strange is going on with all these women wearing the exact same green hoodie. So can Nick Fink work out what is going on and can he reconnect with the love of his life? This looked like an intriguing film. The idea of different aspects of the same person being presented to you and trying to figure out what your relationship status is. And judging by the trailer, we're also possibly dealing with sexual fluidity, with Nick Fink in the trailer interacting with various people of different ethnicities and of different genders, all wearing the same green hoodie. So, yeah, exploring those kinds of things in a modern context is, I think, something to explore. But, from my perspective, there's some really, really good stuff which is in this film but there is a fundamental flaw with the structure of the film. I don't think this film plays fair with the audience. Roughly halfway through the film, the big revelation is made, and and specifically what is happening is revealed. And fair enough. I mean, it's not what I thought it was going to be, 
but it does make sense. It does raise these questions of fluidity, of falling in love with a person, a, a soul, rather than a physical body. Raising questions about gender fluidity as well as sexual fluidity. It's a satisfying explanation for what's going on. But it turns out that the other people in the film, you know, the baby sister and the roommate, they knew aspects of this story before the audience did, and the audience was not let in to the gag. It's basically sprung on the audience completely out of the blue, but it's something which the world in which we are living in already knew or already knew parts of at least and there was no build-up to it whatsoever yes this is a very very cheap film again very few locations actually a lot of cast in it but you know with all these different people wearing the green hoodie but not many of them actually speaking there's a sequence which would require a very expensive special effect. So instead of actually showing the effect on screen, we see somebody reacting to the special effect. Very, very cheap way of doing it. So yes, this is a micro-budget film. But even so, I think a little bit of build-up, a hint, that something unusual was on the horizon in the wide world and not just with this one specific person Bailey Noble wearing the green hoodie if there was some hint that the wider world was affected in the lead up I think it would have been much much better but it felt to me like this revelation had been sprung on the audience when people within the world of the film already knew information that we as an audience needed to know and were simply not given. So I don't think the film plays fair. I don't think the structure of the script allows the audience to be put in the right frame of mind for the revelation to happen. It just comes out of nowhere and, oh, the world around it accepts it's now, let's get on with it. So, yeah, I mean, the things that are brought up, the idea of soulmates, the idea of gender fluidity, the simple practicalities of the situation we find ourselves in is surprisingly complex and does raise really interesting questions. The psychological toll that would happen to somebody in this situation, or, or a couple in this situation. I mean, all those ideas that come up in standard rom-coms, I mean, I want to fall in love with the real you. It doesn't matter what you look like. The soul is what is important. I mean, all these things, all these tropes which are in standard romantic comedies, actually directly confronting them in a film like this. I mean, what is the real you? I mean, it actually matters more than we might like to admit the appearance of somebody we are spending time with, particularly when gender is also an issue. But on that front, I mean, the final scene of this film is brilliant, I thought. I mean, it, this is a charming, sweet little film, which is a 21st century romantic comedy dealing with identity and fluidity and all those kinds of things. 
And there are moments of this film which are really, really charming and I did really love in my cold, dead heart. I find myself, as I grow older, reacting more and more strongly to romantic comedy. And I did react quite strongly to this one by the end. It's just that one little flaw that we should have been warned that there was something universally different about the world in which we're inhabiting. The rules of the world, the world building, if you want, was not strong enough in the first portion of this film. A little bit of a hint, a little bit of an idea that something was different about the entire world and not just about this one individual might have been helpful. So with that irritating flaw, that structural problem at the centre of the way you look tonight, I can't fully give it a yay, even though, as I said, by the end, there were some really, really sweet, really charming moments that did really affect me. And I did really like the film. I just can't fully support it as a great piece of filmmaking. But the story and the ideas within it are really, really impressive and really did work on me. So for me, The Way You Look Tonight, available on streaming platforms, is a very, very high... Ah. Coming attractions. It's always rather chaotic at this time of year, with usual schedules being thrown out the window and stuff being released on Boxing Day and New Year's Day rather than the next Friday available. And the fact that the shortlists for the Oscars have recently released has also added to my chaotic list of stuff. So honestly, I have no idea when the next episode will be and what will be in it. I still have masses of stuff to watch on Netflix and on streaming platforms. And that has been added to with the shortlists. So I'm just going to give you a list of stuff and whether or not any of it will be in the next standard episode, I do not know. Thankfully, two of the cinematic releases which are coming out in this chaotic period, I don't have to bother with. I don't need to watch the French film Titan, which is coming out on New Year's Eve, because I've already seen it at the Film Bath Festival, and you can go back and listen to my review in that special episode. And it was rather surprising that Titan did not make it onto the 15-film long list for contention at the International Feature Oscar. Given that it won the Palme d'Or, you might have anticipated it would be on that list, but it wasn't. I mean, as I personally said when I reviewed Titan, I didn't massively love it, but I still kind of expected it to be on a 15-film long list. Another couple of surprising omissions was the Colombian entry by the Thai director Apichatpong Wirasethakul Memoria, directed by a Palm d'Or winning director and starring Tilda Swinton, even though Columbia submitted it. But yeah, I'm actually kind of glad I don't need to see Memoria now because it looks really abstract and weird. Bad Luck Banging Your Loony Porn didn't make it from Romania either, which rather disappoints me. I mean, yes, it is rather confrontational, but I really did love it. 
So yeah, I mean, those were three films I kind of anticipated being on the 15-film longness, but didn't make it. And as always, really random stuff which nobody was paying attention to did make it. A film from Bhutan made it onto the list. Lunana, a yak in the classroom. And quite honestly, I'm not sure how it's still eligible, because Bhutan tried to submit it in 2020, but it was rejected because the Academy hadn't had an officially recognised submitting body from Bhutan, so they submitted it again in 2021, and it was accepted. I mean, how does that work? Because there is a time period in which the film needs to be released, so how is it still eligible? But apparently it was, and it made it onto the 15-film long list. As did the film from Panama called Plaza Catedral, which nobody was paying attention to, directed by the only working Panamanian director, or at least the only working Panamanian director with any profile, Abner Benaim. It made the 15-film long list. I mean, possibly it has something to do with the fact it's 14-year-old, non-professional child star actor was shot and killed before the film even premiered. Maybe that has something to do with it. But yeah, nobody was paying attention to the Panamanian film Plaza Catedral, but it made it onto the 15-film long list. But uh, yeah, so we'll be gradually working my way through that, hopefully over the next couple of weeks. But Titan did not make it, but it is released cinematically in the near future, so if you do want to check it out, you will be able to. And another cinematic film I will not be paying attention to is Matrix Resurrections. I have zero interest in watching that film. It became blindingly obvious in the second and third Matrix films, that the Wachowskis did not have a firm grasp of where this story was going. What, going in some very, very strange directions from the you know, very influential and very good first Matrix film. They clearly didn't have a definitive path of where it was going to go. So to think that the Wachowskis, or at least one of them directing this new film, has found a direction a decade or so on from the last one, I don't actually trust them at all. So, yeah, I have zero interest in Matrix Resurrections, and I will not be watching it. But there are still quite a few films released cinematically in this odd period, which I do want to check out. We have The King's Man a prequel to the Kingsman films, the second one of which was very problematic, but I still kind of like the franchise, and I'm curious to see it going back in history and seeing the youth of the Colin Firth character, or at least that seems to be what it is, in The King's Man. There's also a film called The Humans, which looks like one of those low-key, small-scale films adapted from a play. I think it's a disparate group of people, you know, a family who doesn't really get on together, gathering together for a Thanksgiving meal and stuff gets discussed. But it's got people like Richard Jenkins and Stephen Yuan in it. So, yeah, The Humans does look kind of cool. There's also Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Licorice Pizza, 
which is being released on New Year's Day, which looks like it's somebody growing up in Hollywood in the 1970s and an attraction forming between a a 20-something girl and a 15-year-old boy. That seems to be what's going on. And there's real-life people in it. I think Bradley Cooper's playing James Brolin, which seems a bit strange. But yeah, people growing up and having inappropriate relationships in the 1970s in Hollywood. And it's directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. So yeah, Licorice Pizza is definitely on the list. As is a film called Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne. A biopic of a real-life Edwardian artist played in the film by Benedict Cumberbatch who created fantastical worlds which were entirely populated by anthropomorphised cats. Well, that seems to be what's going on. These illustrations were enormously popular and Lewis Wayne became very famous through them, but... A hundred years down the line, it is clear that Lewis Wayne was bipolar or had some form of mental illness. And this is exploring it from a distance. Knowing what we know now about mental illness and observing this Edwardian artist as he tries to deal with his demons and also forms what looks from the trailer to be a pretty stable or as stable as it can be relationship with a young woman played by Claire Foy. I mean, that does look rather interesting, so I do want to check out Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne as well. And because the shortlists for the Oscars have been released, I have many things added to my list. Making it onto the documentary long list of 15 films were two music documentaries which were released earlier in the year onto apple plus tv so now i definitely have to watch the velvet underground documentary which was directed by todd haynes and also bizarrely the billy eilish documentary the world's a little blurry also made it onto the 15 film long list for documentary oscar My guess is that that's one of those situations where the people voting for the documentary branch, that was one that most people had seen and therefore most people could vote for because you you have easy access to it on Apple Plus TV. But yeah, I mean, I haven't yet seen it, but I would be surprised if a documentary about Billie Eilish I deem as Oscar-worthy I mean, I'm immensely impressed by Billie Eilish. I kind of like her music even, what little of it I've heard. I mean, I'm so out of touch with modern music. But what little of Billie Eilish's music I've heard, I've liked. And I admire that somebody that young is that talented and that assured of herself. But a documentary about her being worthy of an Oscar? I'm not so sure. But it made the long list, so I will have to watch it. And also on the list for streaming films is Daniel Brawl's directorial debut in the German film Next Door. I do kind of want to check out the cheesy film on Sky Cinema, 8-Bit Christmas. And part of my job has been done for me because one of the premieres just after Christmas on Sky Cinema is a film called Young Hearts, which I added to my list of things to watch 
a couple of weeks ago. It's a first romance story, a first sexual awakening story with very young teenagers, you know, like 14-year-old teenagers. And having a film like that about that kind of relationship in the modern world with social media and all that kind of stuff does look kind of interesting. And now I don't have to pay for it. I just have to wait for it to come on Sky Cinema. So at some point there will be a review of the micro-budget American indie film Young Hearts. On Netflix, the new stuff coming out over the Christmas period is actually really, really interesting. I mean, there's two films which, for differing reasons, I'm eagerly anticipating, and each of them seem to have genuine Oscar buzz behind them. First off, there is Adam McKay's new film, Don't Look Up. Adam McKay is the guy who brought us The Big Short and Vice, and his latest film is a fictional film, which is scarily plausible, about two astrophysicists or astronomers played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, who uncover the fact that a meteor is heading directly towards Earth and will destroy it. The Earth is doomed. As Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence try to persuade the world of this, try and convince people that the world is coming to an end, and nobody believes them. Self-interest and apathy mean that they are just dismissed as fake news and sent on their merry way. So the battle is on to try and convince the world that it is all coming to an end, but nobody believes them. And that seems scarily plausible in the post-Trump era. And the fact it's Adam McKay doing it, I'm very, very eager to see Don't Look Up. And at the other end of the Oscar Beatty spectrum is a psychological thriller, which is the directorial debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal, which I'm fascinated by. It stars Olivia Coleman, and Olivia Coleman plays a woman on a beach vacation who starts involving herself in the lives of a young mother, played by Dakota Johnson, and her children, and this brings up memories and flashbacks of her own traumatic youth, where Olivia Coleman is being played by Jessie Buckley, and the pressures and the troubles of motherhood seem to be all blended into this psychologically disturbing thriller. Uh, It's also got Peter Sarsgaard in it, Maggie Gyllenhaal's husband. I don't think Maggie Gyllenhaal's actually acting in it. She's just acting as director. But either way, that sounds really, really fascinating. And I do want to check out The Lost Daughter. And also added to the list, but I probably won't ever get around to watching it, but it does sound kind of cool, is a Brazilian film called Lully which has a pretty standard premise of a young medical student who, after an accident with an MRI machine, can start reading people's thoughts. And she starts using this technique around the hospital, not only to solve her patients' issues, but also solve her own romantic problems. So yeah, pretty basic stuff, but it does look kind of fun. And I might get around to that, who knows, but... I've got a lot of other stuff to get to. 
including stuff which I need to get to now it's been added to the Oscar shortlists, and I will unfortunately have to watch the Paolo Sorrentino film, The Hand of God, which I was hoping to avoid because I do not like the work of Paolo Sorrentino. But his autobiographical film about growing up in Naples during the 1980s was on the 15 film long list for International Feature Oscar. And now those shortlists have come out, I've started properly paying attention to the Gold Derby lists. And there are a lot of films that were released earlier in the year on Netflix, which do seem to be pretty high up on those Gold Derby lists. So now they have been added onto the list in earnest. Films like Halle Berry's directorial debut, Bruised, and also the Sandra Bullock film, The Unforgivable, as well as the heavyweight Oscar contenders, or what seems to be the heavyweight Oscar contenders, The Power of the Dog and Tick, Tick, Boom. So I've got lots and lots of stuff to get to, and that's even considering the fact I still haven't finished my July foreplay. So, yeah, masses of stuff to do, including all the preparations for Christmas. So I do not know what will be in the next episode or when the next episode will be, but some or all of that is in contention to be reviewed. Before I leave you, a quick reminder that the one yay in this episode is the film Swan Song, which you can most easily find on Apple Plus TV, but might still be in your local art house cinema. It's a poignant thought-provoking heartfelt film about grief and the decisions you need to make on behalf of somebody else and the ethics and the morals of actually doing that making somebody else's decision for them and trying to prevent grief in other people and maybe just projecting your own grief back on yourself it's got some really emotive moments in it as well as a couple of cheeky moments from Aquafina, but in a mostly straight role for Aquafina, who, as I said, is one of my favourite people out there at the moment. But yeah, Swan Song I definitely think is worth watching, and for me, it was a yay. So all that remains for me to say now is this has been Yay, Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Connor Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod and I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.